Please be seated. I once worked at an Episcopal church in South Carolina that had a very interesting character as the senior pastor. Um, very faithful man who in his first career was a radio disc jockey. And, and his intonation and his voice hadn't changed from that. And he would often do the, the call recording when he'd call the church. Welcome to Holy Cross Church on Sullivan's Island. That's kind of how it sounded. And what was interesting is when the worship service began in that church, the procession in the back was where they actually prayed the colic for purity. And Father John would just pray it from the back over the people, and then we would stand and, and process in. And I can remember the way that he would say it with that disc jockey voice sort of minimized the impact of the words, you know, because we praise some intense words there. And he would, be, he would just be so joyful. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. And it, the way it came out really softened the impact of that. But I wonder for you, how does the fact of those words rest with you, that God sees you, that he sees your heart, that he sees deep inside? And you could say those words in a totally different way. Almighty God, to you, all hearts are open, all desires known. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not. I mean, you know, you, you could pray that in two different ways. I'm, I'm not a fan of using the back of my car as a billboard for messages, but I can't deny the power of getting messages into our minds on the bumper of the car in front of us. And so these things tend to stick in my head often, and I don't like it, but sometimes they're useful. So I pulled up three bumper stickers that I think help um, us consider which way we receive the idea that God sees our hearts. So look at the first one. Smile, God loves you. Okay, that's a very positive way to look at it. God loves you, and it's a good thing that he's watching over you, and you can smile about this because of his concern for you. But then there's another bumper sticker. Go to the second one. Caution. God sees you. That's more the Santa Claus one. You better watch out. You better not cry. You know, Santa Claus is watching. And then just for fun, I pulled up another one. Honk if you love Jesus. Text while driving if you want to meet him. (laughs) I just absolutely love that one. It's so relevant in so many ways. I was in a men's Bible study about five years ago, and we had to memorize a scripture each week as we gathered. And the first week, we memorized 2 Chronicles 16.9a, which says, For the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless before him. So God is, his eyes are looking for those who he can support because their heart belongs to him. It's an encouraging verse. It's not one that's supposed to scare us. God is watching, so you better clean up your act. That's not good news. That's terrifying. And yet he is watching, and he is working on our hearts. This morning, I want to make two points. One is that God looks at the heart. And two, God, like a master potter, molds our hearts. So he is at work shaping and fashioning the heart of those he loves. It's a powerful thought that God is at work not just to save us, but also to shape us. God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll, even fewer graduate, very few indeed. 
God has this school because he does not have broken men and women. Instead, he has several other types of people. He has people who claim to have God's authority and don't. People who claim to be broken and aren't. And people who do have God's authority, but who are mad and unbroken. And he has, regretfully, a great mixture of everything in between. All of these he has in abundance, but broken men and women, hardly at all. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all students in this school must suffer much pain. And as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler whom God sovereignly picks who meets out that pain. David was once a student in this school, and Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. That's an introduction to a chapter from a book called A Tale of Three Kings. A Study in Brokenness is the subtitle by a man named Gene Edwards. This is a phenomenal read, and I encourage you, if you are interested in reading something, while we do this preaching series through the life of King David, to pick this up and read it. It's very easy to read and has even been performed in live dramatic presentations. It's a very good interpretation of these events. So if you weren't here last week, you might not know that we've now started into a 10-week preaching series looking at the life of King David. I've titled this Honest to God because I just love the way that David keeps bringing himself back before the Lord and doesn't go after the other gods of his time. And he's a, a, a character contrast between his predecessor, King Saul, who was the first king in the land. Now, last week, we looked at how Israel rejected God as their Lord, and they wanted a king so they could be like other people, and so they could trust in that that person's power. And this week, I'm going to look at the idea that God sees the heart, that the heart of the matter is what we're discussing, that he doesn't look on outward appearances, but he looks at the heart. Your heart matters to God a lot. He really cares about what's going on there, and he is working to shape your heart. Well, it's, I wanted to find the word broken because you can think of a broken heart and you can think of someone who is lovesick or sad because of a lost uh, love relationship. But biblically speaking, the idea of a broken heart is about contrition, being humble before God, bringing your heart before him and submitting to his lordship. It's, it's unlearning the pattern that all humans inherit from our first parents, which is fig leaves and accusations. God went in the Garden of Eden, walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, but when they had disobeyed, they hid from him, and they were ashamed. And God went looking, where are you, Adam? And he's hiding, and he's covered himself with fig leaves, and he said, I'm hiding because I'm naked. And God said, who told you you're naked? Did you disobey me and eat from the tree? And then he starts blaming Eve. She brought the fruit. So we inherit this pattern of hiding in our shame and nakedness and blaming others for it. And a broken heart doesn't do either. A broken heart goes before God and says, I'm in shame, I'm naked, God, would you heal me, would you clothe me? And we say, it's my fault. It's not her fault or his fault. That's what a broken heart looks like, biblically speaking. That kind of brokenness is tough. It's tough to unlearn the patterns of defensiveness Would you say that you are quick to defend your behavior when you are called out on something? Are you quick to point fingers? Are you quick to give excuses? Or are you beginning to learn the pattern of stopping in your tracks and saying, I 
I probably messed up. I, I need to think about where I went wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure I have a part in this. I tell every couple that I marry the four most powerful phrases in the English language. You were right, I was wrong, please forgive me, and I love you. Learning to say those things is about learning a pattern of a broken heart. Now, David, King David was amazing, and it's so great that we have the Psalms that he wrote, and so many of the Psalms of the 150 in the Bible are written by him and attributed to him at the top. And it's important to know who wrote the psalm because if you track with his story and what's going on in his life, then you can read the prayers that accompany many of those instances. And you know the instance, which we'll look at later this summer, of David and Bathsheba. And in that one, if I count right, he broke at least five of the Ten Commandments. That was a pretty good haul for that day. He did a lot of damage. And when confronted by the prophet, he then repented and turned to the Lord. And he wrote the famous Psalm 51 as a, as a result of that. And in there, he says, the sacrifices aren't what God wants. The sacrifice of God are a broken and contrite heart. That's what God likes to see, a broken and contrite heart, which is what David had. Now, lest we make David out to be a perfect hero and Saul to be the antithesis of that, it's interesting to look at some of the things that they had in common. For instance, Both men were incredibly gifted naturally. Both were physically attractive. David wasn't as tall, but he was really handsome. And Saul was a head taller than all of his contemporaries. He stood out. He was a man of charisma. He was a leader. He was valiant and strong. He was a good military fighter. He could wield the spear and the sword and the bow and all those things. He was very gifted. And David was not only handsome, he was also someone who had military ability with the slingshot, with the sword. He was a musician and a really gifted one. He composed many of those psalms to music while he was out in the field as a shepherd early on. David was really gifted as well and was a good leader. Both of these men had that going for them. They also were anointed by Samuel the prophet who came and poured the oil over their head and anointed them. And the spirit of God, it says, rushed upon both of them. So they both had the Spirit of God, and both of them were used by God at various points to do good things for Israel, even Saul. He was was good at fighting against the Philistines. He did a number of things to help God's people, and yet we see one man who has a heart after God and one man who, through these opportunities, began to have a heart that was self-centered and was not God-oriented and eventually is rejected. So there are a number of ways this happens for him. But I want to just point out, too, in Saul's instance, we have far too much narrative here to cover, so I really encourage you to look through the Samuel narrative and read some of this on your own. But what I'm going to tell you two instances. One is Samuel the prophet and priest said to Saul, wait for me. In seven days, I will come and meet you and the troops there, and then I will offer a sacrifice to God, and then you go into battle. And it was unlawful for the king to offer sacrifices. That was the role of a priest. And, and Saul was um, getting impatient and getting nervous. He was afraid because the battle was drawing near and Samuel was running behind. And very impulsively, Saul says, bring the animals here. And he sacrificed them and took upon himself the office of a priest and not the office of a king. And then Samuel shows up and is very frustrated that he has done this, that he's trusted in his own ability and not waited for God and God's timing. And this, this is where we hear the idea of David being a man after God's own heart. Because 
Samuel brings judgment on Saul, and he says this, For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So there's Saul experiencing a a stiff rebuke, and he's being told, your heart is not after God. So God's seeking a man who, who does have a heart after him. And we, of course, know the story. We know that's David. And then another instance happens where the kingdom is ripped out of Saul's hand, where God says, I want you to, to run all of the Amalekites out of the land. They had been a, a thorn in Israel's side in the land for a long time, and that meant to wipe them completely out, including all the cattle and everything, leave no trace that they were ever here. Because some of those things that they would take as spoil were golden gods and household things and all sorts of idolatrous stuff, and it was an offering unto the Lord to do this. But what Saul does is he keeps the spoil. He keeps the king, Agag, alive and takes him as a, cap- as a prisoner, and he takes the best of the cattle. So he puts the bad cattle and the bad sheep to death, but he keeps the really good ones. And when Samuel gets there, he challenges him and says, God gave you a command, and you disobeyed it. Why, why is this? And Saul says, well, I kept these as offerings for the Lord. And he says, do you think God wants your offering more than he wants your obedience? And then, and then apparently he repents, but he's really not repenting. He says, I have sinned, and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed, your vo- uh, obeyed their voice. So he knows why he disobeyed. But then what's so interesting is he begs the prophet, please come back with me before the people. Because again, he still wants to be seen as having the prophet's favor. Because Samuel said, I'm done. He was going to go the other way. And Saul begs him, no, come back, to, come back with me before the people so that they can see that we're still united, that I still have your favor. And as he turns to walk away, Saul grabs his garment and it tears. And then he turns around and he says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. What a tough word that is. And then he does end up going back with him and does one of the most graphic prophetic actions that we see in the Bible. He has this king of the Amalekites brought out and then Samuel puts him to death himself. Give me your sword. You took my role as a priest, I'm going to take your role as the military leader. And right there in front of the people, he does what, Samuel, what Saul was supposed to do. Totally graphic. And then he never sees him again until the day he dies. This is, this is how Saul started to un- unravel. And it moves him eventually to madness. He does some crazy things in those circumstances he's given, but they turn his heart away from God. He keeps rejecting God. Now, a contrast. Let's look at David. What did he have going for him? What opportunities did God present to shape and mold his heart? Well, one, he's the youngest in his family. And so he's relegated to the sheep. He's out in the, in the pasture. And when the great prophet is going to come for a feast and his father, Jesse, gathers up all the sons, he doesn't even think of David. He's the youngest and forgotten. He's out with the sheep all the time. He's got a lot of time on his hands. And he's often left to his own resources and to trust the Lord to defend himself when animals of prey come, bears and lions, and he has to fight them as a teenage boy. Being out there alone is lonely. He had a lot of solitude. He brought his little harp with him, and he wrote songs, and he prayed, and he praised, and he worshiped God, and his heart was being molded through this. Other people would have been bitter. 
I'm no good. I'm the youngest. No, my dad doesn't love me. I'm out here. These sheep, I hate these sheep. You could, you could start to grumble, right? He didn't do that at all. He fought for the sheep. He served. He was joyful. He worshiped the Lord. He learned to rely on God. That was part of the process of his shaping. And you can read some of the things that he says about this process in the Psalms. Psalm 11 talks about how the Lord tests the righteous. Psalm 17, you have tried my heart, David says. And I love Psalm 25. I'm going to just read you a a couple sections from Psalm 25. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And then he goes on a little later and says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. So David knows that God is that master potter who's shaping his heart, and he's inviting it. He's saying, come and teach me your ways. Give me more. And what God does for the next probably 10 years is he uses Saul as Saul becomes more and more crazy as an opportunity for David's heart to be shaped. David is given opportunity to take Saul out, and he refuses to do it. Far be it from me, he says, to touch the Lord's anointed. What incredible restraint, what character we see in David in those moments. And all of that is about God answering this prayer. Teach me your ways, Lord. And he's humble before God. Now, it's a powerful thought. And I wonder for you and for me, what are the circumstances going on right now in our lives? How is God, the master potter, working on your heart? He can do it in prosperity. He can do it in hardship. Sometimes in prosperity, it's even a better opportunity for our hearts because when we are succeeding, we are tempted to think, I'm, I'm doing really well. Look at me. Look how good I am. Or to start to trust in, let's say, it's wealth coming in. My business is booming. This is amazing. I feel secure in it. We start to depend on those things instead of the Lord. And of course, we know in hardship how easy it is for us to turn to the Lord and to start crying out for help there too. But do we do so in bitterness or we do so, do, do so as broken people who are saying, okay, God, I'm submitted to this process. I've surrendered my heart to you. There's a passage in Hebrews that is so telling. It says that the Lord Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered, and it was necessary for him to do this. Jesus wasn't imperfect. We know he's God. And yet, in order to fully be human, he had to experience that so that he can help us when we go through it. The book of Hebrews in many places talks about that and encourages us. Jesus has modeled perfect submission to God, both in prosperity and usually more in adversity and suffering and pain, all the way to the cross. And therefore, he helps us. But it requires a surrender on our part. And I want to ask you the question, have you surrendered your heart to him, to the Lord? Do you see him as that potter who is molding and fashioning you? Do you see the circumstances that have come into your life as coincidental or as sovereign? And the thing about God is that those circumstances are always set up in such a way that you can choose to to be faithless and not believe. You can say, ah, that's just another coincidence, or, you know, it's bad luck, Or you can see God who is sovereign over all things and go, okay, the Lord knows my circumstance. And regardless of how it's come into being, he will use it to shape me. God is doing that in your life right now, whether you acknowledge it or not. And I want to encourage you to surrender your heart to him. 
Because as we see in David, God is looking for men and women with a broken and contrite heart, a heart after his very own. Let me close with Hebrews 12, 3 for you. It says, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that he may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son and daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter whom he receives. This is why God has so few people in his university, in the school of the Lord, because it's tough. But, but like the disciples say, where else would we go? The Lord has the words of eternal life. So I want to encourage you this day to surrender your heart to God and to see the circumstances in your life as his work to form your heart. Would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, again, we acknowledge that our hearts are open to you. You know our desires, that we cannot hide from you or have secrets before you. I pray for you to help us break the pattern of hiding. Help us to come out into the open before you. For you love us and discipline us as your sons and your daughters. Thank you for your servant David and what he has to teach us. And I thank you most of all for your son Jesus who suffered for us and showed us what perfect surrender looks like. Help us this day in our circumstances to surrender our hearts to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.